This is an independently produced women-owned show. All of our content, editing, distribution, and promotion is done by the three people you hear on the podcast each week. And all of it is paid for out of our own pockets because it's important to us. But now you can help us keep the lights on by making a small contribution to support our efforts. For the price of one or two cups of coffee a month, you can help us produce over 40 episodes a year, plus year-round content in our weekly newsletter and our social media community. And remember how your mom got a free VHS tape of Peter, Paul, and Mary when she became a supporter of PBS? You, too, will get special thank you gifts when you support the PCPS. From blooper reels and after-the-episode discussions to raw, uncut video footage of our recording sessions. We appreciate your support, and we want to show it by sending these perks your way. You can become a supporter by going to poppreservationist.com and clicking on the Patreon link. Or go to our link in bio on Instagram and find the Patreon link in our link tree. And thank you from the bottom of our bell-bottomed hearts. This is John Davidson saying, if you don't listen to the Pop Culture Preservation Society, you are missing something. Now that's incredible. Hello world, there's a song that we're singing. Come on, get happy. A whole lot of loving is what we'll be bringing. We'll make you happy. Welcome to the Pop Culture Preservation Society, the podcast for people born in the big wheel generation who remember a time when we actually had to lick the stamp before putting it on the envelope. Gross. <laughs> we believe our Gen X childhoods gave us unforgettable songs, stories, characters, and images. And if we don't talk about them, they'll disappear, like Marshall, Will, and Holly on a routine expedition. And today, we'll be saving the movie that showed the world that Minneapolis was a long way from Walnut Grove, the iconic 1980s music classic, Purple Rain. I'm Carolyn. I'm Kristen. And I'm Michelle. And we are your pop culture preservationists. Hello world, it's a song that we're singing. Come on, get As Purple Rain begins, the famous Warner Brothers logo appears on the screen. Along with the familiar icon, we hear an announcer's voice make a serious introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, the revolution. Applause and whistles of approval emanate from an unseen audience. After a few seconds, we fade in on a solitary figure standing on stage at First Avenue in Minneapolis. Prince is silhouetted in the dead center of the frame, his hands gripping a guitar. He doesn't move or even sing. Instead, this guitar hero simply speaks, and the audience holds its breath, absorbing every last word of the monologue. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. That is from the book Purple Rain by John Muir, and I read it because it gives me chills. I have goosebumps up the back of my skull. I know, I do too. <laughs> I, was... I think... It, I'm sorry, Carolyn, go ahead. Oh, so, no, I was but just she's grabbing her boobs, everyone. I know. The nipple lightning is real right now with Kristen. <laughs> yes. In fact, I, I think I, I need to have like, sunglasses doing that. on. <laughs> That's right. It's coming through the screen. <laughs> no, I was going to say, I, the way that you read it and those words just put me back to watching it and seeing that scene. It, it so perfectly mm-hmm. encapsulates what that those first moments are like. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I think it conjures up an immediate image for so many people that marked an important moment in their adolescence. And for those people for whom it was an important event, the words, dearly beloved, can take your breath away. Oh, yeah. And recently, 
I got to share this iconic movie from our Gen X adolescence with two people who had never seen it before. <laughs> I don't know who you could be talking about. <laughs> um, not us. Uh, special yes, guest. yes, yes, everyone. Carolyn and I sheepishly gathered in Kristen's Greg Brady attic, and we finally watched what was for so many a milestone of their teen years. And for others, apparently not so much, <laughs> because somehow <laughs> Carolyn and I had never seen this movie until now. And what happened after that viewing in my Greg Brady attic was like the best book club I've ever had. <laughs> we turned on the mic and we talked for almost two hours about Prince, about what this movie meant. And even I, who is a super fan, am a super fan? I, who am a su whatever, yeah. came away with a whole new understanding of the story that Prince was actually trying to tell. Right. And you know what? Our intention was that that was going to be our episode. But for me, the revelations just kept on coming. I could not stop thinking about that movie and our conversation. My mind was blown when Kristen shares some theories about the film, and we'll be discussing those a little bit later in the episode. And it became apparent to me that what we needed to do was to come together again and do Purple Rain Book Club 2.0, <laughs> where we discussed the discussion we had following the viewing of Purple Rain. Right, everyone. Did you, could you follow that? It is a discussion <laughs> of the discussion. It's so meta. And let's all be real. If Kristen had her way, we would just have a Purple Rain season. I think we would have a Purple yes, Rain season. Yes, we would. Right. We would um, have a Purple Rain podcast and right. then Purple Rain uh, season in the Purple Rain podcast. <laughs> So uh, so today, we're going to take you through the movie again, and we'll also give you a peek into that discussion we had in Kristen's Attic. And it was a lot. There was a lot mm -hmm. of energy, a lot of purple energy in that Greg Brady Attic. So buckle up, everyone, because we indeed did get crazy. Purple Rain was released on July 27, 1984, and immediately blasted into the number one spot, knocking Ghostbusters out of the spot it had held all summer. And in its first year, the movie made $80 million on a $7 million budget. The album Purple Rain sold 205,000 copies. 205,000 copies on the movie's opening day, meaning wow. that people left the theater and walked across the mall to the record store to buy Sam the Goody. soundtrack. Yeah. That's yes. right. Musicland. That year, the album would sell more than 20 million copies, spend 24 weeks on the Billboard charts, and earn Prince two Grammys and an Oscar for Best Original Song. And at one point, Prince had the top song, the top album, and the top movie in the country. Oh, we're all shaking. God. Everyone's shaking their head. Shaking. Everyone's I, just shaking their it's head. It's like in 1984, I think it was Princess Country and we just lived in it, basically. I think so. <laughs> right. And when you first shared with us um, that little fact when we first watched the movie with you, I was impressed for sure. But now that I've done a little more digging, I just realized how incredible this was. This feat to have all three number one spots with a song, album, and movie is incredibly rare. 
It was everywhere. You couldn't turn on the radio without hearing a Prince song, oh, basically. Right. You brought up, Michelle, that the dance line at your high school did something yeah. to Purple Rain. I mean, obviously not the song. It Purple was Rain, Doves Cry. Yeah, When Doves when Cry. When Doves Cry. My dance line did Baby, I'm a Star. Are there any Anoka Twisters out there? Are you out there listening? If you <laughs> remember out. the choreography to Baby, I'm a Star, call me. I'm sure there you know, were some jazz, were there jazz squares and <laughs> shuffle balls? Box steps. Okay, great box. The answer is no, Carolyn, but I'm really proud of you for throwing those terms out there. Thank You've you. come a long way. Use it or lose it. <laughs> you know something okay. that um, I was thinking about, though, since we've had our our watch party with us, I'm really thinking and ruminating on my um, how I feel about Prince and how I felt about Prince in the 80s, mm-hmm. um, is that... Prince was unique in that I felt like he had music kind of for everyone. Like, you know when Prince, I mean, he is such a, just an incredible guitarist, right? We all know that to be true. And in a lot of his songs, it gets really guitar-y, like, you know, (laughs) and as you guys know, thank you. That's, that's not for me. Like I'm very eighties pop, right? However, when Prince was all over the radio in 1984, believe me, there were plenty of Prince songs for me, right? I think that's pretty cool and unique that he kind of, he kind of pleased everyone. I don't know. That's that's what I was thinking at least. Yeah, I think you're right. And and it's not um, because he was trying to appeal to a broad audience. It was because he was making music exactly the way it came to him in his head and he insisted upon it. And there was some sort of universal appeal to that. Part of it is because he he melded rock and roll and R&B together. And I've mentioned mm-hmm. this several times that when after he died and, you know, the whole world descended upon Paisley Park, which is his home and his studio, it was people made a pilgrimage to Paisley Park. And when you looked around at the people who were there, it was the most diverse crowd I've ever been a part of in my entire life. Every color of the rainbow, every age, every level of coolness from people who look just like Apollonia to people who looked like your grandma. I mean, serious with like the orthopedic shoes and the tight mm-hmm. perm. And I'm like, you are a Prince fan? But yeah, well, he did yes, something. And I think that's what true art really does. It wow. reaches Every segment, mm-hmm. every person, it touches their their souls. And when you see that group, it's kind of a microcosm of the world. It's like his music yeah. brought everyone together. We need you back, Prince. Oh, geez, you just <laughs> broke my heart there, Carolyn. Ugh. But the critics were there for Purple Rain. It wasn't just a popular movie and a popular soundtrack. The critics were all in. Siskel and Ebert said it was the best rock film since Pink Floyd's The Wall, and Roger Ebert called it the Citizen Kane of rock movies. And he's not the only one who used that Citizen Kane reference. I mean, I can't imagine he was talking about the acting, and we're going to get into that later. <laughs> um, but I think it was more about the movie making is probably what he was talking about, I would imagine. Yeah, and that's, again, not something that I necessarily perceived, but it's mostly about how they use the performance sequences. This is what was breaking new ground, which is what Citizen Kane did. It was breaking new ground. That's why, I mean, honestly, you guys, I watched Citizen Citizen Kane recently and I fell asleep, but (laughs) that, but it's because it was breaking new ground. So Purple Rain was making music visual in order to tell a story, but in a very MTV style, not like a musical where the characters stop and sing a song to tell the audience what is happening, (laughs) but where an actual concert performance is part of the storytelling. Oh, right. Like for those of us who never 
went to a Prince concert, we can honestly just watch Purple Rain and be treated to one. I mean, I felt like I was there. It was it was electric, those performances yeah. in this movie. Oh, definitely. Um, and we'll talk about this a little bit um, in a few minutes. But again, the, the narrative uh, role that the music played in those performances mm-hmm. – um, really was something. It was so important that, and I feel like not having seen it back then when it first came out, I missed that. So when those songs came on the radio for anyone else who had seen it, they immediately went to the place in the movie, what part of the story it was telling. It was a lot more than just a song to do my go-go's dance. (laughs) (laughs) Your white girl dance. Yes. Yes. I think the performances, when people respond to Purple Rain and they have feelings about Purple Rain, they're responding to the performances because some people didn't even perceive the story. I'm raising my hand. Um, And seriously, listen to Carolyn's reaction after watching the movie for the very first time when she's responding to Prince's actual performances on stage. It was the experience. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the music is a big part of that, but it is the guitar playing and just watching that. I mean, watch those hands moving. And he's also doing other stuff. Yes. I'm doing it right now, people. He's like bending and flipping and, and he's, flopping he's and gyrating. gyrating. He's, 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 he's getting out. Yeah. Oh, I broke my pants. <laughs> I got so excited. Um, but yeah, I just, I feel like I did miss out by not seeing some of those songs. Performed. Yeah, yes. exactly. Mm-hmm. By him and not just Be- hearing them on the radio. Right. Yeah. Because I felt watching Purple Rain, I felt like I was at a Prince concert. I felt like, especially mm-hmm. at the yeah. end when he did like three songs in a row, I was like so excited when then another song started. I was like, oh, yes, okay. Oh, this is I would die for you. Yeah, okay, it's right in the camera at that one point. Like, yeah. he knows where that camera is. He was looking at my soul. Yes. Oh, my, oh my God. God. Right at me. He was looking at me, Carol. I'm I like, know. it's never too late, Carol. Yes. I know you didn't come along in 84, but. Come on, it's never too late. And I just take me with you. Oh, oh, Carolyn, that's so sweet. And I think I commented at one point, you can see, this is this, I'm going to go dark now. You can see how Prince developed a dependence on painkillers because he's wearing these high heeled boots and he's jumping off of, of speaker towers and he's, uh, the, the pressure on his hips must have been debilitating it must have been so destructive yes Mm -hmm. i mean like you were you just said it jumping and how did he always land and keep playing like i'm wondering in all of his performances i mean i know in the movie they could cut stuff but at concerts did he ever jump yes he did i bet ouch he was an acrobat it was crazy you didn't twist an ankle in those those how did he not twist an ankle those they're at least three inches high yeah, I can't even yeah. walk in a wedge without twisting an ankle. <laughs> Prince is better at heels than we are. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. And right. all of these, I have to add that all of these performances were filmed live. Does that make sense? Everything mm-hmm. that you see in the movie is a live performance. These were filmed live performances. They were not, this was not lip syncing to pre-recorded music, which is usually what happens when you film a movie. It's even, that's how they do music videos too. Nobody performs live and then they film it. And this was also something that we hadn't really seen before in a movie. So it was big. This whole, this, this cultural thing that happened was big. It was historic. And after all of that, I think we need to let our listeners in on our conversation about why you didn't see it. If this movie and this soundtrack were everywhere, in every theater, on every radio station, at our parties and school dances, 
how did you miss out on this cultural event? Especially because you both started out very emphatically with one reason, the same reason, by the way. But after talking for a while, we stumbled upon what might be the real reason. Right. I went in um, thinking, I know exactly why I didn't see this movie. I was very committed to that thought. Um, Michelle and I had talked about it. We both agreed. This is why we didn't see it. We just didn't want to see it. Yeah, and we were exactly on the same page about this. And this is what we said. I think um, I've been contemplating this, and it really comes down to, I didn't want to. (laughs) (laughs) Carolyn, I actually wrote in my notes, I hope this doesn't get me kicked out of Minnesota. But honestly, I didn't want to. I know. And so I then had to kind of go, okay, well, why didn't you want to, Carolyn? Yeah. And um, I think, this is what I'm going to say, I think with my um, kind of delving into it, that I, um, I was kind of into Bruce Springsteen, um, Sting and the Police, Phil Collins at the time. I mean, these artists who just were there, them, like they were wearing jeans and a t-shirt and performing. They weren't a character. And I felt like Prince was kind of mm-hmm. like a character. Mm-hmm. He's a little bit over the top. Okay, so I thought I knew why I didn't see it. But then Michelle said something that really triggered a memory for me. And it took the conversation in a whole new and unexpected direction. It might really not be that we didn't want to. It might have been something far more important. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I thought, um, I thought, you know, 1984 was the most traumatic summer of my life because of this really hard move that I had to make. Mm-hmm. And I was in just a deep despair that summer. So just listen to what came out after talking about this for a bit. Yeah. And you know, that um, makes me think of something when you said the summer of 84. So that was my first summer after college, my freshman year, we had moved back from New Jersey to Texas. Yeah. And I didn't really have any friends at home. And this wasn't something I would have gone to see by myself. No. Um, and so there really wasn't an opportunity that no. summer um, that I would have even gone to see it. I'm sure if I had had some friends, even back at, you know, in New Jersey, we're all going to see Purple Rain, I would have been there in a heartbeat. But because I didn't really have a group to go with, too, um, right. there wasn't anything like making me drag my sister to go. And we didn't go to movies by ourselves. No, no. you're right. Because yeah. if this came out in July of 84, we moved in August of 84. I moved from a really tiny town in Washington to Scottsdale, Arizona, in a huge high school. And I remember that um, I can still hear when doves cry and like picture... I think it was like a football game that I might have gone to. I don't know that I did, but the dance line was doing a dance to When Doves Cry. And I remember liking the song. But let's just think that that movie was probably still playing in the theaters throughout yeah. the fall. I had nobody to do anything with. I mean, yeah, I hung I out with my just, mom. We This is very significant. I mean, we've talked about lots of reasons that you didn't see it, but I think you just hit on the number one thing. So you didn't have people to go no, see it I had nobody. Right? I had no either. friends. Fresh, uh, oh. my so you weren't that far apart. Yeah. You were, in da- and, were you in Dallas? No. I was in um, Scottsdale, Arizona. Scottsdale, yeah. that's right. But that that fall of my sophomore year, when I was the new kid in the giant high school, I mean, I was a teeny tiny fish. I was like, I was like scrim in a in an ocean. <laughs> Is that what it's called? I know what I you're talking about. Scrum, scrum, scrum. 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 That's rugby. Oh gosh, okay. <laughs> Well, Scott, but you guys, sounds, this oh. is a really big deal because, number one, we didn't go see movies by ourselves. It's not the kind of movie that you would go with your family. No. Um, oh, God, my mom would have never gotten to see this movie. And likely, in your, within your group of friends, somebody would have said, let's go see Purple Rain. And even if you didn't care to see it or like mm-hmm. his music, you'd be like, okay. So you guys actually missed your window. 
to see Purple Rain. Aw. I know. Isn't that sad? But think how, but how happy I am to have, have gotten yes. it back. And appreciating it in a different way now that we live in Minnesota. I think oh, had I think seen about it that. back yeah. in 1984 in New Jersey, I'd been like, whatever. Um, but yeah, it had more meaning, I think, seeing it for the first time living here in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, from there, the conversation did a complete 180 from I didn't want to and his music wasn't for me to this. Well, like we were just, or I was saying before, and the more I think about it, this was the soundtrack of my college parties. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of these songs were played there. Um, And so I could see as a, that's how it touched me and how Prince touched me is like, this is where I'm dancing with my future husband for the first time. This is where I'm. Right, you know, right. getting drunk for the you know first time in college. Yeah, not life. <laughs> um, but you know, it's all of those experiences, and this is the backdrop of it's all of soundtrack. that. So it yeah, really does I, have that effect. It is my high school years. It is like sophomore, junior year of high school. It is still played when I'm in college. You know, two years after that, and then. I mean, it's like I said, um, you know, all the songs come on. I want to get up and dance. It's yeah, like, well. that's what it is to me is it's just, it's, it's eighties music to me. And yes. I know it's not, it's not eighties pop everybody. It's not like, I'm not it's saying I'm not comparing 80s. it. Yes. It's from it's the eighties. Yeah. It just, it's a nostalgic. All of these yeah. songs are so nostalgic for me. Well, it's like being at a wedding and they play Sweet Caroline and yeah. everyone <laughs> and everybody gets up. Same thing with yeah, any of these right. songs. Oh, you guys, this is where my FOMO came in mm-hmm. on the college dance floor, I, I realized mm-hmm. when I was oh. watching this movie. Really, because, you know, the uh, Prince song would come on, everybody would go to the dance floor, and people were doing these specific moves. And I was like, what are these? And I wasn't going to ask. Lots of times I'd go to the bathroom probably during them because <laughs> I didn't. Wasn't the grapevine <laughs> or the box step or it was, yeah, <laughs> just, just square. Of those. Mm-hmm. Or just that, you know, some of those Morris Day moves even when, you know, like mm-hmm. Jungle Land came. Wait. Jungle Love. Love. That's Bruce. Not Jungle Land. Like when Jungle Love came on and people were doing those moves too, I missed out on all of that. Like when Um, they throw their leg, like throw their leg out, 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 out. Yeah, Those guys, those two guys on the balcony, I'm doing it with my hands. Yes, yes, exactly. But I'm thinking of the move, remember in Purple Rain, the move we just learned when we saw it, and what song is everybody in the crowd is flicking their hands. Oh, yeah, flicks. Flick, 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 flick. But like, that would have been so fun to know what everybody was doing and join in. So after I watched the movie with you guys, I realized that I was probably having less of an experience every time I heard a Prince song, Um, whether it was the dance moves or the emotions that the song kind of conjured up. I didn't get the full effect, but now I will. Yeah, That's such a reflection, right? I really do believe that the movie Purple Rain was sort of a cultural event, much like Grease was. Yeah. It (laughs) seemed like everybody saw it. So we decided to ask our followers, too, if they had seen it, because I didn't feel like I had an unbiased lens. And Carol and Michelle hadn't seen it and reported to me that they didn't want to. And I was seeing it through the lens of a 16-year-old girl living in Minneapolis in 1984. It was a very personal time travel experience for me. Purple Rain was like an electric current, just like you said, Carolyn. It was an electric current running through my high school, and I was on the verge of 
everything. Prince was unleashing all of us. Like, basically, let's go crazy, right? (laughs) Plus, the movie screams Minneapolis in 1984. That's what we looked like. That's the music we were listening to. Those were the streets we drove on. It was extremely personal. So I needed to take the temperature of the general public to see where the real middle was between Carolyn and Michelle, who had never seen it, and me, who crafted my entire high school experience around it. Right. So we asked our followers to chime in and let us know how they felt about Purple Rain. And you guys, those responses were passionate. It was clear that the movie meant a lot to a lot of people. People shared their memories and their feelings. They often actually told us where they saw it and with whom. And it was like a marker for a lot of people, something that deserved a bookmark in their personal history. There were even two people who randomly commented that they had gone to see Purple Rain on their first date. Yeah, and for one of those people, it was both their first date and their 16th birthday. I will still say that seeing a movie with bare boobs and fairly graphic sex scenes on a first date would have made me want (laughs) and pray that the earth would just open up and swallow me in that movie theater. I would have been so uncomfortable. It would have been too much for Michelle. She'd be Uh running out the back door. Mm-mm. Too much. Oh, Grab gosh. my popcorn and go. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's our friend Shane, you guys, who probably wrote my favorite comment of all. And uh, so Shane said, six times in the theater, the theater manager called me Purple Shane for years. <laughs> uh, hey, uh, if you guys are wondering if we sing Purple Shane together in that attic when we listened, uh, when we watched this movie for the first time, you have not been listening to this podcast for very long, have you? Because, of course, the answer is yes. Just listen to this. The theater manager called me Purple Shane for years. <laughs> purple Shane. That's right. Purple Shane. Oh, wordplay is not for pain. <laughs> hey, you guys, when we're together, we can actually sing all together. Let's do it. Purple Shane. Purple Shane. He will always be Purple Shane to me now. Right. <laughs> And I have just one more story to share with you. This is from our friend Amy Lively, host of our favorite podcast, For the Record, The 70s. She said, for my birthday, my younger brother rented the movie and a VCR, and he set it up in my bedroom while I was out. We had a VCR, but he wanted me to watch it in the comfort of my bedroom. He was about 12 years old at the time. That's like I love the that sweetest. story. I also just think that at 12 years old, he's already, I mean, he's taking care of her. I just think that, um, Amy, your brother, his, um, whoever he ended up being with as an adult is super lucky Mm -hmm. because he was already showing Mm -hmm. that type of just care. Yes. Very high emotional intelligence. Yeah. Very high emotional intelligence. And I'm sure he was like, I'm sure their mom was like, Honey, we have a VCR. And he's like, no, mom. No, you just, you don't understand. I know. It's not the same. I got to do it for Amy. It's for Amy. (laughs) Okay, so let's refresh everybody's memory because I'm sure there are people who haven't seen Purple Rain since they saw it in the theater in 1984. And that was actually me until Prince died. That time travel feeling that I was talking about was amplified by not just distance, but also grief. I was 16 years old sitting in that theater in April of 2017, even though my teenage son was sitting right next to me. It was a super trippy experience. Okay, so what was Purple Rain about? Let's just do this in a nutshell. 
Again, I'm quoting from John Muir's book called Purple Rain. He says, Purple Rain is a semi-autobiographical story of band infighting, personal chaos, and a violent, unpredictable home life in Minneapolis, revealing the real-life cycle of violence and insecurity behind the talent of a remarkable Minneapolis musician known as The Kid. So the kid performs with his bandmates, known as The Revolution, which includes Dr. Fink, Bobby Z, Brown Mark, and fan favorites Wendy and Lisa at the soon-to-be-famous Minneapolis club called First Avenue. First Avenue, by the way, is still there or here. It sits iconically in the same exact location on First Avenue as it did back then, and it's still a breeding ground for up-and-coming performers and, and big names, too. Um And your first concert at First Avenue is a kind of rite of passage for people here. And until recently, it was even run by the same exact people that we see in Purple Rain. This is where people gathered on the day that Prince died. Thousands of people flooded the streets in front of First Avenue, and they had to shut down all the streets surrounding the club. Wow, what a day that must have been. So also, the kid's father in the movie is a failed musician who beats his wife, And there are hints that she might also be a musician and maybe has done better than the father or overshadowed his success. And this is the demon that haunts our main character throughout the movie, being overshadowed by someone else. It bleeds over into his own personal and professional life. And this is where our story will come from. The kid's nemesis is Morris Day, leader of a rival band called The Time. He is the kid's rival both creatively and romantically. Yes, and speaking of romantic lead, the romantic lead in Purple Rain is Apollonia, who is a flawlessly beautiful 19-year-old performer (laughs) coming to Minneapolis looking for a break. And she has to decide if that break will come from the kid or Morris Day. (laughs) (laughs) Apples and oranges. Uh, The question (laughs) Carolyn and I had, and I think everyone had, is, is this story about Prince's real life? Or is this complete fiction? That is the question that everybody had then and now. So let's get a little backstory before we jump into our discussion. So it seems the movie seems to take a lot from Prince's real life story. His father was a musician who may have felt threatened or overshadowed by his mother's success, who was also a musician. There was discord at home. Enough that Prince moved out of his parents' home when he was 13 years old and moved in with his bandmate, Andre Simone. You might know the name Andre Simone. Um, He moved in with Andre Simone's family because Andre Simone was only 13. And can we just talk about that for a minute, that they were in a band together when they were 13? Like, he was already Prince when he was 13 years old. Wow. So. Although you don't hear a lot of specifics about that discord that had him move out of his house at 13, you don't do that. You don't move in with a friend at 13 years old Mm -mm. unless things Mm -mm. are really bad, right? Mm -hmm. Other things in the movie were probably embellished or fabricated for the sake of the story, but this underlying theme seems to come from his own life. Right. And that, as I was watching it, it made me ask the question, did Prince write this story because it feels not only autobiographical, but it also feels a little clunky. Like there are some plot holes and, you know, some things that aren't explained very well, which made me think that maybe, just maybe, it was written by a person who was not a screenwriter. Okay. So he did not write this movie. Right. Um, 
And despite all of the accolades that I read at the top about the movie and it being Citizen Kane and whatnot, the script is really the thing that gets the most mm-hmm. criticism. There was, however, an original script that Prince sketched out. So he was extremely involved in the story. He did not write it, but he was extremely involved in what that story was. But ultimately, the final script was written by a guy who was a seasoned veteran. His name was William Blinn, and he was no slouch, you guys. He was best known for the legendary miniseries Roots, and this is where I blew Carolyn's mind, and the made-for-TV movie, talk about legendary, Brian's Song. (laughs) You guys, I mean, wow. Okay, can we just say... That William Blinn is responsible for two of the most memorable moments of my television experience as a kid. Roots and Brian's song left indelible marks on me. I mean, those I can conjure them up right away. I can see them. I cried. I learned. Yes. I. Yay, you go, William Blinn. I hope you're still alive. But talk about apples and oranges. Look at like the script of Roots and Brian's song compared to the script of Purple Rain. The only thing I... Can the only way I can kind of reconcile this is by saying, I think William Blinn might have known who he was writing for. And I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way. And we're going to talk about the acting in a little bit. But, you know, he's not going to really be able to write these really in-depth monologues for these characters who are not actors at all. So he's probably thinking, I have to kind of write this story and I have to tell it in a pretty simplistic way because I don't have you know, seasoned actors or even trained actors that I'm working with here, different than he had in Roots, for goodness sakes, right? Michelle, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, he could have been doing that on purpose. (laughs) Wow, that just came to me. (laughs) I'm going to make the script very clunky on purpose. (laughs) Well, also, you know, maybe some, let's also just hope some things got edited out that we were like, that beautiful soliloquy by Apollonia (laughs) was edited out. (laughs) They were like, Yeah. So when the studio got the script, there would be a ton of friction between the studio, Warner Brothers, and the director, Al Magnoli. Um, God, I hope I said that right. The studio wanting to make all sorts of changes and the director feeling that the studio had no concept of what they were trying to make. First of all, their, the, their biggest concern, the studio, was that this would be too urban, quote unquote, urban, meaning black, of course. Um, That's code for black. That it would be a movie that would play for one weekend in the inner city for 14-year-old black girls. This would be the primary argument that would persist during the entire making of the film. And the director insisted this was a film that would have mass appeal. It would have messages that applied to everyone's life, no matter where you are from. And the studio was just like, black people, black people. Um, And the first thing that the studio wanted to do to make this movie more appealing to a broader audience, aka a whiter audience, whiter audience, was replace Prince. And listen to what happened when I broke that news to Carolyn and Michelle. We want to replace Prince. <laughs> what? Yes. Yeah. And the director's like, okay, I don't think you understand what this is. This is not a musical about a musician. This is a musical about Prince. Played by Prince. Yeah. They wanted to replace Prince with. Oh, no. Oh, no. I love all these. I Wait know. for it. Wait for it. Every time I like I get so excited. Oh, gosh. 
John Travolta. I was going to no. say that. I was going to say that. Oh my that. god, it's right here Holy in my nose. You're like peeking. No, I wasn't. I was like, who else would yeah. have been at John that? Travolta. Yeah. Because no. they were under they that this there was some other contract issue where he was under contract to do another movie, and they're like, let's get him in this one. Let's do but this wait, one. Did they not understand that it was all Prince songs that were like? No, they just they could change movie. that. They could just change it. Like that movie yeah. has nothing without the music. That's right. <laughs> And that's, that's what the director like. John Travolta would not, would not be from no, Minneapolis. Well, also, I mean, no. in 1984, John Travolta is not, nothing wrong, everybody listening with 1984 John Travolta, but in 1984, John Travolta is not quite 1978 John no. Travolta, right? And that could be when, when, it, when did Twist of Fate come out? That might have been oh. 1984. <laughs> okay, so we know the movie is actually called Two of a Kind. The theme song is Twist of Fate which obviously made much more of an impression on us than the movie did. Right? And so that's maybe what he went into instead. Mm, wah, wah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wah, wah. Okay. He was on the downslide. This was post-Urban Cowboy and... I think I'm just... What that would have well, meant. I mean, yeah. if if they had done it with somebody like that, I mean, obviously we it's, wouldn't be sitting here. But right, we would not be sitting here. That's exactly <laughs> but, but right. Also, did the movie or the album come out first? Good question. That is a very good question. The album came out first, although they are hand in hand. They create like what you hear on the album is what is recorded live in the movie. Those are live recordings on the okay, album. Okay, because. I'm still going back to these people who want John Travolta and yes, they're looking at right. the sh- and they're like, but it's an album. Like, yeah, I don't yeah. understand. They're just like, we want to scrap this. Let, it's almost like we want to scrap this project. Songs? Oh God, can, can, you imagine? Voice can you imagine John Travolta <laughs> singing When Doves Cry? Oh gosh. Yeah, obviously it needed to be Prince. But one thing I didn't know before seeing the movie was that Prince was not Prince in the movie. Like I thought it was, he was playing Prince but stay with me here, people. I know. <laughs> but they, like we said before, they never say the name Prince in the movie because he's actually, even the way he looks like Prince, he walks like Prince, he sings right. like Prince, he plays the guitar like Prince, he's actually playing a character called the Kid. And that's actually the character's name. It's on the credits and everything. And I can't remember. You guys, do we ever hear anyone call him by a different name? No, no. Okay, yeah, I didn't think so. so. I'm not even sure that I perceived that when I watched the movie. I don't even think I perceived that he was the kid. I don't even think I noticed that they didn't say Prince. And you have to wonder why the kid, and all I can figure out is that because he really was Prince. He really was playing Prince, and they couldn't give him a different name. Yeah. Um, Until you mentioned it in our conversation after we watched the movie, I too had no idea that he wasn't Prince in the movie and that wasn't his name. So, of course, just every time he'd be on the screen, I'd be like, okay, that's Prince. So, um, yeah, I had no idea it was um, he was the kid. The I kid. thought of the kid mm-hmm. two, uh, for two different ways. One, the kid, because he was um, obviously supposed to be very young in the movie, mm-hmm. you know, when they're, when the manager at First Avenue and stuff is calling for him, you know, he'll, he'll say the kid or whatever. But also I think it was, um, I think it was purposeful in just the, the relationship with his dad too. Like he was still oh. the kid, right? Yes. So even yeah. though he wants to be, he's not agreeing with the, you know, the lifestyle of his, of his dad and the choices his dad's making, we will see towards the end coming full circle. He is his dad's kid, right? So I almost see it too as the kid 
meaning more than just he's this young, you know. That's very much a reflection I had as I prepared for today's episode and really thinking of um, of that term, the kid. And later on in our conversation, I'll share a little bit more about kind of what you just said, Michelle, how some of the scenes I really saw Prince as a little boy instead mm-hmm. of the adult character. Oh, yeah. yeah. Breaking my heart again. I did not, if you had asked me when I was 16, what was this movie about? I would not have said this is about fathers and sons. Oh, but gosh, it is. No, right. This is a movie about fathers and sons. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll talk about that too, uh, more um, in depth, more about watching it through a, our lens, our, you know, mm-hmm. 50 something year old lenses is a totally different. Uh, How um, that is different. Yeah, right. a totally different experience. I mean, Carolyn and I, that's the only one we have, but I can mm-hmm. actually put myself back at age 15 and I can, I can completely imagine what I would have felt watching this movie and it would not have been the things I felt right. watching it, nope. you know, a few weeks ago. Yeah. Not even close. And one thing you mentioned earlier, Michelle, is that there actually weren't that many real actors in the movie, which is obvious at times (laughs) it was um and that is because most of the people in the movie were real people in prince's circle they were the people in his band the people in other actual bands like the time even the guy who plays billy the owner of first avenue was actually prince's concert promoter even the irl manager of first avenue has a few lines in the movie everyone is a real person these are not actors yes it's obvious i wondered a lot about that blonde cocktail waitress at first avenue mostly (laughs) wondered if she had a pulse you know (laughs) pretty flat (laughs) and it's a pretty like although she doesn't have a big role to play in the story she's pretty front and center on the screen no she's just a friend She's just a friend. She's a backup singer. She's an on-again, off-again girlfriend. Um, Or actually a lot. I think everybody is an on-again, off-again girlfriend. (laughs) It gets a little confusing. But who did Carolyn love? Do you guys remember? Man, Morris and Jerome. Oh, God. They were my favorite. They were so good. They could go into anything. They have the delivery for, you know, this comic, like comic relief thing. I just, I love them. They even were better than Prince made I, I agree. I they agree. They were so funny. I agree with Carolyn, and I'm not sure that I would have even um, recognized that unless you had brought it up. Morris Day and Jerome really have big parts in this movie, and they are the comic relief, and <laughs> they are so good. This is something that Carolyn wondered. Like, were they acting? Were they acting? I've seen them live in concert, and it is just like this. It is hilarious. So they naturally played these roles as themselves in the movie. I mean, they're playing a role on stage, too, right? So, But they're not creating those right. roles for the movie. Right. I don't want to break their hearts. So we ought to have, like, a signal. A password. Okay, what's the password? You got it. Got what? The password. Password is what? Exactly. The password is exactly? No, it's... Hold it, hold it. Slow down. The babe walks in. You see her. I see her. You come get me. I come get you. And I probably have a couple little sexes on standby. So you glide by me and you say what? Okay. The password is okay? Fire Lanka, sir. Damn it, say the password. What? Say the password, onion head. The password is what? That's what I'm asking you. It's the password. The password is it? The password is what? It. You just said so. The password isn't it. The password is what? Got it. I got it. 
Right. Get her right. What? But not all of the actors, quote unquote actors, were rookies. <laughs> and I got to drop the bombshell about the actor who played Prince's dad in the movie because he was a very distinguished actor, but none of us recognized him. His name was Clarence Williams III. And if you don't know who that is, just listen to this. Can I guess who was an actor? Because I can tell. Okay. Can I guess? Yeah, you can guess. Because I think a really good performance was the dad. So was the dad an actor? He was not only an actor, he was a very distinguished yeah, actor. Yeah, he was good. His name is Clarence Williams III, and you may know him from, I love the big pause, Ooh. The Mod Squad. <gasps> oh! I didn't like that, but I know Well, he show. was much older in this than he would have been in The Mod Squad. That's right. I remember my parents loved The Mod Squad. He Just picture a much bigger yeah, afro. Yeah. He was really good. He was yeah, excellent. He was. He, excellent. And he sold that role because he mm-hmm. was so believable. Like everybody yeah. else... You can see all their, you can see them reading the lines. Like you can see the script right mm-hmm. in front of us as they're saying mm-hmm. their lines. And that's fine. I forgave them all for that because I know they're not, most of them aren't actors. But him, you got lost in that, that man's Absolutely. life and his, and his, um, you got lost sickness. in his eyes. Oh, yeah. In yes. his eyes. He said, I mean, he maybe had four lines in the whole movie, but he says everything with his eyes. Yeah. And you just completely and utterly. No, he was excellent. He was excellent. But the rest of them were like, you know, when the neighbor kids get together to put on a show in the backyard. So Clarence Williams III played Link on the Mod Squad, and he died just a little over a year ago. Oh, he must have been quite old. Actually, he was younger than you think in the movie. He was like in his early 40s. Oh, don't, don't say that. I know. I know, you guys. guys. I hate it when we realize, when we have realizations Mm -hmm. like that. Like when we all realize that Alice and the Brady Bunch was younger than we are now. Was 42. Mm -hmm. I know. He was. He was like 42 or something when the movie came out. All the golden girls. Essentially our parents' (laughs) age. Yeah, so he died just in 2021. Um, And it's funny. I think that he should have gotten more accolades for this movie. But when he died, people people had to be reminded there was a dad in Purple Rain, and what? it was this guy. Wait, people had to be reminded there was a dad in Purple <laughs> <Yeah>. Rain? Because, <laughs> you know, wow. it's just about the performances. Nobody I remembers guess, what the story yeah. is. I guess everybody's mm-hmm. still remembering it through their, you know, 15-year-old, right. 16-year-old I was lens. just going to say that. That's And that might have been the last time they saw it. You know, That's right. True. So they yeah, don't remember true. who this guy was. And yet that was when we look at it on screen now, we're like, that should have been a really memorable performance for him. So everyone else required acting lessons, which didn't always go well because they're just a bunch of ragtag bandmates. And Prince wasn't an actor either, but he took this very seriously. Telling this story with his music was like a religious quest for him. And although he didn't deliver his lines that well, it kind of didn't matter. And all of us agreed that he gave one of the best performances anyway. Mm-hmm. Yes, without a doubt, you guys. I was... um thinking I've talked before about how John Travolta in um, Saturday Night Fever acted a lot with his eyes. He didn't have Mm -hmm. to say anything, but you knew what was happening in the scene, what he was thinking, all without having him say one line. And if you just watch the scene where Prince meets Apollonia for the first time, the, the scene is several minutes long, and he doesn't say one word. Yet we know exactly what is happening in that scene, what he is thinking. He says it all with his face. Mm -hmm. Uh To me, that's acting. That is the Mm -hmm. epitome of acting if you don't even have to talk. Oh, yeah. I think that if I had to take all of these non-actors in Purple Rain and rank them, Prince was by far the best. He just had so many 
feelings, you guys. Oh, yes. And I remember mm-hmm. when I was watching it, I think, didn't I keep, I said it out loud a few times, like, he has so many feelings. Look <laughs> at his feelings. And and like you said, Carolyn, sometimes that was without him saying anything. You could just tell from his facial expressions or his actions. He had an energy about him too that you could really, we could feel his those feelings. Oh, and maybe because it was personal, maybe because mm-hmm. this was a personal story he was bringing to the screen. And so maybe those those feelings, maybe that was not acting. Mm-hmm. It's oh. possible, right? Good There's um, one other person who was an actor who had to audition for the role, and that was Apollonia. That is so hmm. strange to me. That's because <laughs> that is. I like, wondered her most of the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wondered if it was her very first role ever because, I mean, I did she's too. not super comfortable. And most of her performance is super stilted. It's very I just thought, reading the lines from my script. Yeah. Uh-huh. And yeah. she was sweet. She was very, oh, very sweet. Yes. Yes. But, but you can't deny but she's you're right. sweet. She's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. She's mm-hmm. you you can't take your eyes off of her. But then unfortunately when she opens her mouth and she starts speaking, <laughs> it's it's like Don't oh, send this like, to Apollonia, anybody. Don't no, but it, it is a little bit like I'm sure she got better, but it is a little bit like watching an eighth grade play. Yeah, and I thought I was just like you. I assumed this was her first role ever. I I thought she was also an on again, off again girlfriend. She may have been. I don't know. You guys, they all were, but no, <laughs> she was primarily a model, and she actually had roles before Purple Rain on Chips, Fantasy Island, Night Rider. She starred in some music videos. I also thought she didn't do much after Purple Rain, but I forgot about one very important role, and that is. Falcon Crest. She starred as Lorenzo Lamas's. God, what is his name? Lamas. Lorenzo Lamas's girlfriend on Falcon Crest. And you she know, was actually called Apollonia on the show. <laughs> what? what? So maybe she's not acting. I don't know. I yeah, don't, she was. Just going to stick with that name. I'm sorry. That sentence, what you just said, there's just so much in that I want to just <laughs> take apart. Like if her name was Apollonia in the in Falcon Crest, was she Apollonia that had acted? <laughs> Purple rain. So was right. he dating? <laughs> well, also let's was go he back dating to the actual purple Apollonia from Purple yes. Rain. I know. And you're taught we're talking about like, no, she actually was an actress, you guys. She was on Chips, Fantasy Island, Knight Rider, Falcon Crest. All right. Let's all rewind back to those shows and think about the people that were on those shows. She was just perfect for those shows. She really was. You're like, right. Back in yes. the 80s, the early 80s, you know, you didn't have to have you didn't have to have gone to like, you know, the Tisch school at NYU or anything like that no. to, you know, to get on chips as, you know, right. the 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 one walk-on role on chips. So actually she was perfect for those. She was gorgeous. She had the hair, the body, the, you know. It's all about the vibe. The 80s were totally. all about vibe. You had mm-hmm. to have an 80s vibe and she had it in spades. Okay, here's a little fun fact. You want to know who she was dating when she was filming Purple Rain? It wasn't Prince. It wasn't Prince. Hmm. Oh my god, it was um Billy the um the concert promoter. No. <laughs> Morris nope. Day. Nope. <laughs> Nope. Oh, um, okay. oh, the You're blonde waitress. The blonde waitress. <laughs> oh, that's a good guess, but no. Uh, no. no. Okay. okay. David Lee Roth. Oh, I thought oh. you meant who was in Purple Rain. <laughs> no, she, her circle oh. was a little larger than Purple Rain. <laughs> well, it seems like they had a very tight circle. David Lee Roth. Oh, that would have been a good couple, actually. That's a pretty the good hair, couple. The hair. Yeah, the hair alone. The vibe. Talk about the vibe again, oh, right? Gosh. The 80s vibe. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. they were electric together, I bet. I bet they were. <laughs> Sorry, the way you said that. <laughs> they were electric. I don't mean that in like a sexual way. Although now that I just said it, now that's of course where my mind's going. But like, I just meant like powerfully, uh, yeah. Powerfully All 80s. Right, move on. Powerful yes. 80s vibe. Yeah. So she actually auditioned for the movie just two weeks before filming started because someone else had been cast as the romantic lead, and they left abruptly just two weeks before filming began. The role was written for Prince's then-girlfriend, Denise Matthews, also known as Vanity, from the band Vanity Six. So right before filming, she was offered the role of Mary Magdalene in Martin Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ. You guys remember that movie? I know. I'm just so sorry. Just, can we just pause, everybody? (laughs) It's just like when Carolyn is like, this is so great. Like, You've got you got two offers, Vanity. <laughs> you can play you can play Apollonia, basically, or you can play Mary Magdalene. It's like, hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Hmm. Which one is gonna she go back to Apple's yeah. That's right. Do I do a Martin Scorsese film? Or do I do this movie with a ragtag bunch of backyardigans and something that will probably turn out to be a B movie directed by a guy who has one student film under his belt? I mean, there's no choice. There's no choice to be made. You're going with Martin Scorsese. Also, but also, wait, that is a questionable casting choice to get Vanity. And listen, Vanity, like, in my mind, she looks just like Apollonia because I yes, feel like I all of Prince's girlfriends yeah. looked like that. But, like, that somebody was like, mm, I know the perfect person to play the mother of God, you know, or the mother of Jesus. No, no, like, no. No, no. Mary Magdalene. Yeah. Okay, let's go back to our Bible. Oh, oh, yes. Mary oh, Magdalene no, is not, not the mother of Jesus. Okay. <laughs> Mary Magdalene is the prostitute. Prostitute. Oh, uh-huh. right, right. Okay. Well, I, you know what? Hey, I never I never said that I knew um, the Bible, so. <laughs> okay, do you guys remember the story I told you about my friend Judy who worked at McDonald's? Okay, so here's the st- I just love this story, and it has to do with vanity. That's why I bring it up right now. So I used to work with a woman named Judy who lived in the suburb where Paisley Park is. And Paisley Park is not in the city of Minneapolis. Prince grew up in North Minneapolis. Paisley Park is far from the matting crowd. It is as far from North Minneapolis as you can get. It's more like cornfields rather than North Minneapolis. And so Judy is working the closing shift at, um, at McDonald's and she's, you know, so she's got, she's on clothes, she's on clothes. And, um, Prince comes driving in the parking lot of McDonald's on his motorcycle with vanity on the back. And so everybody in the McDonald's is like, turn on the grill, turn on the grill, turn the lights on. Imagine they like, there's a soundtrack to this and it's when doves cry, obviously, right? Yes. The motorcycle (laughs) pulling up. This could have been a commercial for McDonald's. No kidding. This should have been Seriously. And so Judy, she runs to the register and she's got her little polyester vest on and her visor, right? And she's just waiting for Prince to come place his order. Vanity comes to the register first and she places her order. And then Prince comes up. And he leans over and he whispers to her, I would like a filet of fish. (laughs) (laughs) And Michelle goes, this is the best response. Listen to this. That's who eats the filet of fish. (laughs) (laughs) I knew they had it on the menu for someone, you guys. It's for Prince. It's for Prince. Also, can mm-hmm. I just say really quickly, you, and when you're retelling the story, I imagine too, they're all like, turn on the grill, turn on the grill. And I'm just imagining 
they, you know, it's in slow-mo now, everybody. Prince and Vanity get off the motorcycle, and as they walk into the McDonald's, the doors just part. Like, they open with, like, no one opening them, and just, fought, like, smoke machine smoke is just billowing, but it's got, like, a purple, like, purple smoke. And then they're doing that slow-mo walk up to the cash register. Right. I'm going to get filet fish forever from now on in honor of Prince. <laughs> That's, Aww. like, one of the biggest moments of Judy's life. Judy's young life was changed that day. Oh, my gosh, for sure. So there's one character in the movie that doesn't get acknowledged as much as it should, and that is the audience at First Avenue. I loved them. It was like my high school. Oh, if yeah, you're, yeah. if the boys at your high well, school wore makeup, exactly. I was gonna say it's right. like yeah. without all the little. Um, they all had like almost like glitter um, eyeshadow and and little like stripes, like stripes on their forehead. Yeah. yeah. So without mm-hmm. that, but the hairstyles and the 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 clothing and you know there were there were it was a great mix of girls and guys and the guys mm-hmm. with their kind of long mullets. And bright colors, all the guys in the layered bright colors, like the bright blue kind of open jacket, you know, like a short sleeve members only jacket kind of over like a white tee. And it was just all very representative of 1984. um, Kids that age. So 80s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Without a doubt. Yeah. It was really, it was all of the kids in that audience were really setting up for us the tone of this movie with the bright sparkles. There was so much hairspray. Oh my God, the asymmetrical haircuts. You'd have one he- side of your head would be all spiky and then the other side would be all slicked back behind your ear. <laughs> they were really making. Have, did either of you ever have an asymmetrical hairstyle? No, I was far too afraid. Me too. But I had friends who did. No, I was all about the hot rollers. So the crowd at First Avenue was made up of 900 extras that were all from local high schools and colleges, which, you guys, really hurts my feelings because I was not there. I didn't even know that this was an option. Can I ask you, was it news in Minneapolis that this movie was getting made? Like, was it on the local news or? No. Well, I mean, yes and no. Um Obviously, for some people, it was because there were 900 people there. For me, absolutely not. I had no idea until it was on the verge of coming out. And we got a comment from Jane Haugen Olson, who was editor-in-chief of one of the most important local magazines here in the Twin Cities called Minneapolis St. Paul Magazine. And she is well known for her love of prints. And she commented on our Purple Rain post that there was such a buzz on her college campus in St. Paul when the filming was happening when it was, when to show up, where it was, who, what, where. Everyone was trying to be extras in this movie that Prince was making. There was no social media at that time, so it was all word of mouth. You either caught the wave or you didn't. It was like a huge game of telephone. So these kids were on the set from 6 in the morning until 6 at night, hooting and hollering. They're waving their hands in the air. They had to be on their feet for 12 hours during all of these performances. And remember, these were actual performances. This was not um, anybody lip syncing to a pre-recorded track. So they were getting the biggest and best Prince concert in history. And they were just so happy to be there, just inches away from him. And in between takes, they would all drop to the floor and they would talk and they would hang out. And they became this very tight-knit community, this tribe of regular kids who shared something really, really special. 
how do we not know any of them that were there? How do we not They've know somebody be out that there. was there? If you were in the audience in Purple Rain, please one yeah. eight hundred yes PCPS. <laughs> that is not true, people. Do not that call is, that. We You're don't probably have that gonna phone get number. like some awful line. No, go to our website at poppreservationists.com and leave us a voicemail because we want to talk to you. Yes. I just sure. want to be your friend. <laughs> Kristen just wants to touch you. Like, I want to touch an ice angel's hand that held Donny Osmond's. Okay, let's get to the telling of this story of this movie. A a deep dive, as it were. And one very important thing to know is something that Michelle pointed out in our discussion in the attic. Something that I absorbed but did not consciously know when I saw it as a 16-year-old. And it is the thing that differentiates this movie from any others that came before it. Yeah, I... I think I could only pick up on this because I'm a seasoned 53-year-old woman instead of a 16-year-old girl. And that is that the concert performances at First Avenue actually are what tell the story. They drive this whole story. The lyrics of each song reflect what is happening in the story. And I don't think this is rocket science. I think this is just something that at 53, I picked up on right away. But at 16, I wouldn't have, I don't think. I would have just been singing along. Um, But they're placing them, these songs and these performances, in the movie, exactly where they need to go to move this story along. And even the reactions of the characters during the performances, they'll they'll cut to the audience and they'll show Apollonia or they'll show people in the crowd or they'll show Morris Day. Those faces tell us what is happening in the story, almost like Mm -hmm. taking the place of dialogue, whether it's crying or turning and running out or shaking of the head or even just smiling and dancing. I would love to go back now and see how many lines of actual dialogue there are in that movie or how many, how much of the movie is spoken parts. Cause really, like you just said, Kristen, so much of the movie and the storyline is told with these scenes where nobody is actually speaking. They're, you know, crying and running out a door or yeah. um, <laughs> fighting. There's a lot or of crying it's, and running away. There's a lot yes. of crying and running away. And you don't need any dialogue to understand what that means. And I said earlier that the performances in this movie are the beating heart of the film. And this is exactly what I mean, because these performances are not just dynamic, but they're telling us the whole story, which means that when we go through the story, we will also be going deep on the performances. And for that discussion, you will have to wait until next week when we'll bring you part two of our best ever book club discussion of the iconic 80s movie Purple Rain. We'll start at Let's Go Crazy and walk you all the way through Baby, I'm a Star. Thank you very much, you guys, for joining us today and for sending us all your heartfelt stories about your own Purple Rain experiences. We love, love, love hearing from you. Even if we don't use your stories in our episodes, they always give us validation that, yes, we are talking about things that you care about. And that is what keeps us going. And hey, if you haven't signed up for our weekly reader, which is our email newsletter that is delivered to your inbox every Friday morning, now is a great time to sign up because we'll have lots of clips from Purple Rain that will instantly send you back in time. And it's easy to sign up for our weekly reader. You can just go to our website at poppreservationists.com. That's plural, preservationists. Did you guys get that? I spit at my mic. Um, or uh, there's usually a link. Um, Carolyn, is there a link in the show notes? There is always a link in the show notes, yes. And a special thank you to those supporters on Patreon. The PCPS is a listener-supported project made possible by donations from people like you. And your support helps us pay the bills and keep roof over our heads while we devote ourselves to this work, and we cannot thank you enough. 
So if you'd like to join our group of supporters, here's what you can do. You can visit the Patreon website at patreon.com and put Pop Culture Preservation Society in the search bubble. You can also visit our link tree on Instagram or visit our website. Also, uh, we uh, have Patreon links on our show notes, too. And you guys, when I say show notes, um, those of you listening, do you know what I'm talking about? Because I sometimes I don't. don't. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you right now. So wherever you're listening, say it's on Apple or on Spotify, if you go to the description right underneath our little logo, whatever episode you're listening to, it gives a description of what we've talked about today. And there's always some really fun links to maybe websites we've mentioned in the episode or books we've mentioned. And... Like we just said, there are links to our website, uh, to our Patreon page, and um, other fun stuff to check out. We would definitely, though, like to give a shout out to our newest Patreon supporters, Anisha and Amy, and also to longtime Patreon supporters, Erica, Natalie, Jennifer, Tracy, Margaret, and Sherry. Thanks, you guys, so much. In the meantime, let's raise our glasses for a toast, courtesy of the cast of Three's Company. To good times. To happy days. To Little House on the Prairie. Cheers. Cheers, y'all. The information, opinions, and comments expressed on the Pop Culture Preservation Hello, Society podcast belong solely to Carolyn, the crushologist, and Hello Newman, and are in no way representative of our employers or affiliates. And though we truly believe we are always right, there is always a first time. The PCPS is written, produced, and recorded in Minneapolis, Minnesota, home of the fictional WJM Studios and our beloved Mary Richards. Nanu Nanu, keep on trucking, and may the force be with you. Something else.